Amen. Please be seated. For the first of many times, no doubt, I will ask you to turn to the Gospel of Isaiah. This is the fifth gospel in the Bible, as most commentators agree. It is evangelistic from the beginning to the end. In fact, this week I was a little off balance in my normal preparation. I've been gone a little bit, and then I went to middle school camp for the first four days. I found it difficult to get clear thoughts during the middle school camp experience. And so when the office was calling, asking for my series title, I had my sermon title ready, but my series title, I I wanted to make it a good one because this is going to be a lengthy series. It wasn't coming to me. But Thursday, after they had already published, it came to me. Isaiah means the Lord is salvation. The Lord saves. That's the title of the sermon series. The Lord saves. That's what Isaiah is about. It's an incredible book in how it's written, the loftiness of the language, uh, what he pictures for us. There's probably no book in the Bible that has more about God in one place than Isaiah. It's certainly no book in the Bible, aside from the actual account of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. No book has more detail about the payment that Christ makes for us so that we can be saved. Admittedly, when I started to study this book several months ago in preparation for this, I got excited about how much there was, but then became overwhelmed pretty soon thereafter. And I was reading one commentator, Alec Moyer, who writes probably one of the more succinct yet technical commentaries, so it's only about this thick compared to volumes most people write. This is how he describes the beginning of a process that lasted him decades before he actually published his commentary. He said, the sheer length of a book like Isaiah, not to mention the vast literature which has accumulated around it, compels any commentator to decide what sort of commentary to write. With the absurd unrealism of the very young, I plan to include everything. I understand how that plan goes awry quickly when you start to plumb the depths of it. There's just so much treasure uh, in Isaiah. If you could picture like... uh, if you saw the movie, the, the Hobbit movie, where they go into the lair where the dragon is and all that coinage is there, all, that, all the just tons and tons and tons of gold, that's like walking into Isaiah. There's just more than any one preacher or teacher or writer could help you mine. It's just so much there. Drew Hunter says that Isaiah is a difficult book, but it repays the time and labor given to it. God has given us this book for the increase of our joy. It's written to believers about believing the gospel so that the whole world might believe the gospel. That's really what it's about. There are particular reference, references to a particular time that we'll look at, but you'll see how it's transcended what Isaiah says, what he preaches. Today, we're going to have an introduction to this book. And we'll see the, a bit of the glorious, poetic, rich, moving passages that we find in Isaiah. I think Christians are aware of these various quotes because we hear them at Advent. Uh, We sing them in a lot of the hymns we have. Uh, The New Testament is replete with quotes from Isaiah. But few people really know uh, the purpose of Isaiah, why it was written, when it was written, even who wrote it, a bit of a mystery other than this person named Isaiah. So we want to answer some of those questions to prepare us for what we'll go through together as we journey through this book. What is Isaiah's legacy today? That's where we want to end. Uh, what impact, in particular, does the message of Isaiah have on the church today? We'll see that as well. At least we'll be introduced to that today. For now, let's begin as I read verse 1 and verse 2 
of Isaiah chapter 1. Hear now God's holy word. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amoz, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we read in this book, you are our father, we are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. I pray your Spirit's ministry of illumination to be upon us, that we might understand your word and be changed. We confess with Isaiah that you are God, and there is none like you. You declare the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done. Your counsel shall stand, and you will accomplish all your purpose. Lord, accomplish your purpose through us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You are no doubt familiar with some of those highlight passages from Isaiah, like when he was called in chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundation of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me. For I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. The beginning of Isaiah's call there in chapter 6 is much like what is crafted in historic liturgy of the church. The idea is we are supposed to come into contact with the Holy God. And when we come into contact with the Holy God, the natural reaction, the reflex, will be to say, woe is me. And it won't just be, woe is me, it's woe is us. We are unclean people. We cannot stand in the presence of God. This was Isaiah's experience. It's our experience every time we come into God's presence. But it never ends there, because Isaiah says also, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal, that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and whom will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. That's the reaction for the one who is saved, for the one who is redeemed, the one who has been atoned for. Send me, Lord. I want to tell other sinners of how they can be forgiven their sins. Of course, that's just the beginning in Isaiah 9, the forecast of the one who would provide the final atonement for us 700 years before he comes. Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. 
on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Later in Isaiah 12, 2. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and I will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. Isaiah 40. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. Isaiah is an eloquently worded call to salvation. Salvation in the God of Israel, who is our God in Christ. Don't think, though, of Isaiah as a singular letter that a prophet wrote at one time or over a short period of time and then gave it to the church to read like the New Testament epistles are. And even some Old Testament prophets wrote like this. That's not the case with Isaiah. Isaiah ministered for five decades, maybe a little bit more. He had four kings that he, reign, that he uh, ministered during their reigns. And he gave uh, a repeated prophetic message over and over and over again to Judah, the southern kingdom, that which remained after the northern kingdom was taken captive. And he gave this message over and over and over, and it was written down over time and compiled. It's more like a, a compilation of the highlights of what Isaiah said during the course of his ministry. Notice the opening verse. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amoz, which he saw concerning Judah in Jerusalem. That's the southern kingdom and its capital, Judah in Jerusalem. In the days of Uzziah, that's the king who reigned. Jotham, the next king. Ahaz, the king after him. And Hezekiah, kings of Judah. He reigned or he ministered during these reigns. The book has several themes that we'll see. The predominant theme is this hope, this hope in God's salvation that will provide through Messiah. Uh, God the Savior, the messianic hope for the southern kingdom in duress, looking at the pressure of being taken captive, seeing the discipline of God come upon them. He's speaking to them about Messiah who will come and will ultimately free them from their sin. But he also talks about the Holy One of Israel. There's a picture of God here that we can't escape. In fact, the picture of God drives us to Messiah. That's the beauty of what Isaiah does. He doesn't shy away from telling us the truth about God and the truth about our sin, but he comes with that message, the message of Messiah, of Christ to come, the one who will fulfill uh, what we cannot fulfill. It's about God's providence and history. It's about salvation. The Lord saves. If you were to make divisions in the book to kind of study it, in a way that would be most understandable, a way that I'll probably follow. Moyer puts it this way. He says, you might look at the first third of the book as God who reigns, the king who reigns, the king, the Messiah king. All this picture of the God who is the most powerful, and he is the only one who can save us because we have to have God himself be with us so we might be saved. Emmanuel. The middle 
third of the book speaks of the one who will personify this salvation, Jesus himself. It's a distinct picture of the suffering servant, what he would have to go through so that we could be free. In the last portion of the book, it's not exactly in thirds, but the last portion of the third section is about the anointed conquering king and what he'll ultimately accomplish now as he saves, but then in glory and in the future. It's been rightly said, and I have there printed on your insert, Isaiah is widely considered the deepest, richest, and most theologically significant book in the Old Testament. Isaiah means the Lord saves. Jerome, the 6th century church father, said, Isaiah should be called an evangelist rather than a prophet because he describes all the mysteries of Christ and the church so clearly that you would think he was composing a history of what was already happening. Isaiah is considered one of the literary gems of the ancient world. It's not just cherished among Christians or Jews. This is the apex of a Hebrew poetic style. It's, there's brilliant imagery in it. There's a whole range of human emotion depicted in the words. Some of the passages you'll recognize. Though your sins be like scarlet, they, are, they will be as white as snow. Here I am, send me, as we just read. Unto us a child is born. The wolf will live with the lamb, and a little child shall lead them. And a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. Comfort, comfort my people. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Come, all you who thirst. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Well, first of all, who was Isaiah? Isaiah was a prophet who lived in the 8th century before Christ. 740 years before Jesus was born. In the Old Testament, there are three main offices in the church called Israel at that time. There were prophets, there were priests, and there were kings. All of them had a distinct role to play in God's economy, in God's governance. Uh, The role of the priest was to be a mediator between God and the people, to bring sacrifices, to conduct worship on behalf of the people. Uh, The priest also would open up the law of God to the people. Really, the preacher's of the Old Testament church were the priests. The prophets were in office ordained around the time of Moses to bring attention to the ways in which the people were not following God's law. Sometimes the prophets were raised up to confront the priests because it was often the case that the church was weak because of weak priests. They weren't bringing the law of God to the people. They weren't speaking the truth to the people. They weren't carrying out what God had called them to carry out faithfully. And so the prophets rose up to speak and confront the priests. See that in Malachi very explicitly. So the priests and the prophets didn't always get along, and they're not the same. They're different offices. The prophet didn't usually give new commandments. It would give new information about what God might do, but it was really a call to obey God's law. That's what the prophet was raised up to do. The king was that civil leader ordained by God to represent the people to the nations. You could see how all three of these work together. And in the time of Isaiah, you have a growing kingdom called Assyria who have just taken captive the whole northern kingdom, the ten tri- the lost tribes of Israel. And the reason the north was disciplined is they had been disobedient for centuries, not just decades, for centuries, 
before this. This is a long time from 2 Samuel that Pastor Nathan's walking us through. This is long after the glory years of David and Solomon. Many, many kings had come and gone since then, most unfaithful. The kingdom split shortly after the time of Solomon into the north and to the south. In the north, instead of seeking God, they sought the nations to help them against Assyria, and God brought discipline upon them for trusting in other people rather than God. And the north was taken, and so the south is there, called Judah, and Isaiah's ministering, and Uzziah's the king, and now they're nervous that Assyria would turn their eyes towards the south, which they were doing. So Isaiah is raised up to speak truth to the people and to the king and to the priests that they would repent, that they would stop looking to nations for sustenance, that they would return to the law of God, return to right worship, return to a reverence for God and a trust in him for salvation. And they were teetering. Some wanted them to go to Egypt and ask Egypt for help against Assyria. The same problem the north followed. So here is Isaiah raised up to speak this truth. He's one of 16 prophets who have their message written out. There were hundreds of prophets, but we only have 16 who have their writings preserved for us in Holy Scripture. And Isaiah, the longest of these, well, very close in overall words to what Jeremiah spoke as well. More chapters, but similar in words. During Isaiah's ministry in the south, Hosea was ministering at the same time in the north. We know that Isaiah was married. He had at least two two sons. We don't know much more about him. We understand that he was martyred after Hezekiah died, probably by Hezekiah's son, Manasseh. Tradition says that he was cousins with King Uzziah, the king of Judah, the king that died just as he was taking his place as a prophet. When did he minister? Again, it was 740 B.C. all the way to 690 B.C. Great political turmoil going on at this time. Assyria expanding into all the world at that time, looking at Judah. And here is Isaiah over a 50-year span marking out the message that God had given him for the people of God. When you think of Isaiah, because there has been much discussion and debate about the authorship, was there one Isaiah or multiple Isaiahs? And most who come with a critical bent already, who just can't really receive the fact that the Bible is a supernatural book that does tell us what will happen in the future accurately. Uh, There has been this effort to kind of go back and say, well, there's no way that Isaiah in this period of time could have predicted what happens uh, 20 years ahead. So it must have been a different Isaiah that came along and wrote this. And that's the basis for their saying there must be multiple Isaiahs. No way one Isaiah could predict these things. They'll say there are stylistic differences. There's truth to that. But here's the reason for the stylistic differences. It's written over 50 years. Not too long ago, somebody asked me a question about a sermon I preached 12 years ago. I can't believe people listen to any of my sermons, let alone 12 years ago, especially 12 years ago. And so I had to literally go back online and listen to a bit of what he was asking me about. Now, it's still me, but there there are some stylistic differences. That's Tony, 12 years ago, not a prophet, with all that Isaiah had given to him by the Spirit, you can understand why there would be some changes in the way he speaks and says things over a 50-year period. And remember another thing. Isaiah is a compilation of his teaching put together for us as we read it and for the people of God for all time. But it was over time that these sections were put together under Isaiah's leadership and in his lifetime to be read to the people of God. 
think of it like a time lapse. My son loves to do these videos, and he will uh, do pretty tricky things with just an iPhone. And one of the neat things that he did happened on our mission trip when we had a huge job to do uh, where there was a foundation dug, a form built, cement poured. All that happened over the course of a whole day, really a day and a half. And so he duct taped his iPhone to the tree right where it was happening and would film it throughout the day. And we're talking about an eight-hour process probably total when you add it all up. But when you watch the clip, you could see very vividly the progress and what happens in like a minute. That's Isaiah, the book of Isaiah in 66 measly chapters. Tells you what happened over a 50-year prophetic ministry career. Prophets were not forecasters primarily. That's what we think of as prophecies, telling about the future. Yes, they did that, and that authenticated them, but they were truth-tellers. They were people who were used by God to call them out on areas of disobedience and to remind them of the gospel, too. It wasn't just all gloom and doom. And that's exactly what we have happening in the life and ministry of Isaiah in a very, very dark time when there was all sorts of anxiety about what would happen. That's why Isaiah 9 says this, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. He's speaking in the present. Yes, we know Christ is the fulfillment, but he's saying right now we have the light of Christ given to us through the prophets so we can, we can be optimistic about God's plan in the world. And that's how the prophets spoke. They didn't care if it would happen thousands of years from now. As long as they knew it would happen, that gave them strength for that moment. So the pressure from Assyria, the pressure under God's discipline, what they saw happening to their counterparts in the north, by having a messianic vision, they were able to be obedient in their time. It didn't matter when Messiah would actually come, but he was going to come. And the prophet confirmed it and said it would happen. I was just in Colorado not too long ago, and if you've ever climbed a mountain and seen the beautiful view, you'll see when you get to that vantage point, all these mountains line up. They're like stacked together, and they seem really close to each other, one after another, with a little bit of light shining a different way. It's a beautiful scene. But what you know to be the case is that it looks like they're close and they're stacked together, but in, in reality, they could be miles apart between each other. The prophets receive God's word like mountains stacked together. Their concern wasn't over the gap between the mountains and how much time it took, but just that it was going to happen. And because it would happen, it would help them in their moment then. And that's true for us today. We don't know when all the final fulfillments of God's uh, prophecies will happen, but they will happen, and that gives us surety now under whatever we're dealing with. That's faith that God gives us to lay hold of this truth. What was the basic message of Isaiah? If you look at the second verse chapter 1 there on your insert, we have an indication about what Isaiah will say over the course of his ministry. He says, hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. This is a common way the prophet will call uh, the jury, he'll, he'll call the witnesses. It's not just the people of God who are being accused, but he wants everything to hear God's declaration. O hear, O heavens, O give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. And now Isaiah quotes God. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. Israel was God's child, God's people. God had redeemed them physically in their past and spiritually as well. Yet they still rebelled. Prophets were called to bring the people back to following God's law, to acknowledge God's law, their guilt, and to confess and to repent and to turn. 
The people weren't looking to God for sustenance and salvation. They were looking to other nations. They were looking to themselves, other gods even. Isaiah has called at this time of sin, religious formalism, just going through the motions, just plain fruitlessness. Then Isaiah saw the Lord in a marvelous vision, and like all who really see the Lord, was impressed with God's glory and his own sinfulness, and then once cleansed and commissioned by God, he was ready to represent the Lord to his people and to bring the powerful message of judgment and grace and coming glory. But it wouldn't stop just with his people. That's the beauty of the message of Isaiah. More than any of the other prophets, we start to see that the people of God were going to come to God so that they might be sent to the world for Christ. We start to see the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant in the words of Isaiah. Remember that the promise to Abraham was to be a blessing to the nations. It was always the plan of God to extend Messiah's salvation to the nations. And Isaiah speaks in these terms. Yes, he's concerned with the people of God right there. They had to repent. They had to turn. They had to accept God's salvation, if you will. But the outcome would be that they would bring that message beyond their own walls, so to speak. And that's true for us. As we become clear on the gospel, when we personally grasp that as a community, we will be overwhelmed with that grace and we'll have to tell other people. I loved how Ben, uh, he weaved into his prayer our, our mission and vision as a church. We're a people who love to worship our God by studying his word and then we proclaim the gospel. We become mature that way. By studying his word, by worshiping him, when we do these things, We're confronted with God, who we are in the gospel, and we're refreshed in the gospel, and then we naturally, it's not like one of those items are are optional or not. We go and we tell. And that's what happens through Isaiah's prophecy then and now. In Isaiah 52, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation. And of course, in Isaiah 1, a passage we'll get to very soon. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. The message of Isaiah is this, and there are many messages. Remember God's holy law. Remember God's word. Confess your sins. God will forgive you. God will remove all your sins. How will he do this? God will send Messiah to redeem us. Trust in God. Revere God. Obey God. God saves sinners. Ray Ortland says, if Isaiah were alive today, he would say to Christian believers like us, the Lord saves, beginning with us. And it won't stop with us. It will go from us. What was the impact of Isaiah on the rest of Scripture? What is the impact, I should say? There are numerous predictions about Messiah that we see come to pass in Jesus. Vivid descriptions of Messiah in chapter 53, one of the greatest prophetic marvels in the Bible, that 53rd chapter of Isaiah. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, And no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet 
we esteem him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. This is written 700 years before the Romans came up with crucifixion. There was not a comparable form of execution in 700 BC. There were some bad versions of execution, but not one this descriptive. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. Jesus quotes from Isaiah more than any other prophet. Direct quotes and phrases from Isaiah appear in all four Gospels in the book of Acts, in Romans, Corinthians, Galatians, Peter, Ephesians, Hebrews, and Revelation. In fact, I think the only way to properly begin to understand Revelation is you've got to know Isaiah. Two of the best pictures that I want to share with you in this introduction from Scripture about the legacy of Isaiah happen in the life of Jesus when he's in the temple or in a synagogue, and then also later with Philip, who's sharing the good news. Listen to how Isaiah reads into this, and how we know that an interpretation of Isaiah that sees Jesus as the fulfillment of it all is accurate. In Luke 4, And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, this is Jesus, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. This is an incredible picture. I don't know if we'll get to see these video recaps when we get to heaven, but this is one I want to see for sure. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He enrolled the scroll of Isaiah and found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. So you can imagine Jesus reading this to the people, the congregants. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And Jesus rolls back up the scroll, puts it down, and went back to the attendant and sat down. He gives the scroll to the attendant, sits down. No word spoken. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. That gives me the tingles every time I even tell that story again. It's an amazing picture of Jesus himself saying, this book's about me. Another great picture of this happens in the book of Acts when the apostles are out preaching the gospel. People are coming to faith. Gentiles are coming to faith. People have never opened an Old Testament before, never been anywhere to see a scroll of Isaiah before. Now, in Acts 8, it says, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. This guy's high on the level. He had come to Jerusalem to worship. So he was seeking in some way what had been spreading from there. And was returning, seated in his chariot. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the Spirit said to Philip, 
go over and join this chariot. Wouldn't you like every evangelistic opportunity to happen like this? Hey, go to Hy-Vee and, and, and go over to that guy. Go over and join his chariot. So Philip ran to him, ran to him. That wasn't their usual apostolic luck to have this happen. Usually they were running away from somebody who was chasing them out of town. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet. He hears it in the words of a belie- you know, in the mind of a believer, illumined by the Holy Spirit, knows exactly what he's reading. He's reading the gospel. Reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you're reading? And said, How can I understand? The Ethiopian said, How can I understand unless somebody guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shear is silent, so he opens not his mouth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? What a beautiful line. That Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with the scripture, with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. We can see how Isaiah is the fifth gospel. It is loaded with evangelistic material. And what is Isaiah's legacy today? Well, just to close and to help us think about where we, what we will begin to plumb as we go through this book together, maybe the most popular legacy of Isaiah's prophecy is Handel's Messiah. Most people know Handel's Messiah. Uh, probably 30 or 40 percent of Handel's Messiah is directly from Isaiah 7, Isaiah 9, Isaiah 35, 40, 53, 60. It's, it's laden with the story of Isaiah because Isaiah prophesies Jesus' coming, tells what happens when he comes, and gives inkling of what it'll be like in the end. Unlike any other book in the Bible, it fills that all out for us. That's probably the most popular legacy. David Linden says that the book of Isaiah has in it as much about Christ as all the other prophets combined. Uh, but there's so much more in Isaiah, not just the Messianic cope, although it's glorious. Edward Young, in his commentary, uh, Isaiah brings us face to face with him who sits on the throne, high and lifted up, who controls the destinies of nations, and who sends us to a child, even our Lord and Redeemer. Machen said about this prophet, he was full of the grace of God. You don't normally hear people say the Old Testament has the grace of God. You'll hear people say that's the God of wrath and the God of graces and the It's the God of grace from beginning to end. From the time man fell in the garden, it's been all about God's grace for us. There is no other way. And the prophets understood this. Barry Webb said it is the most theologically significant book in the Old Testament. Oswald, the commentator, says of all the books in the Old Testament, Isaiah is perhaps the richest. But I like what Ray Ortland says, and I think it summarizes its legacy for us today, what it means and impact today. In Isaiah's day, his message was unpopular. A prophet with his name, the Lord saves, the people could see a mile away what he stood for, and not many listened. Their hearts were too dead to resonate with the greatest thing in the universe. And so it is today. If the gospel that you cannot be your own savior, but God can save you totally, does not thrill you, it's probably an irritant to your self-importance, your lust for control, and moral superiority. Even in the church, the more clearly the good news is preached and the more directly it is applied, the more inevitably it sparks controversy. So be it. The Lord saves is the improbable truth we've been looking for but resisting all our lives. Perhaps the biggest legacy of Isaiah for us today, in the day and age we live, 
with the spirit of age that we are con- spirit of the age we are confronting i think it comes into play with the depiction of the necessary work of messiah messiah didn't come just to be a moral example or an inspiration to us someone who died for a cause messiah came to suffer and die because of our sins and for our sins we needed the blood sacrifice that only the perfect holy willing savior could give to be saved from the wretchedness of our sins you see the bloody picture of the messiah that's painted in isaiah 52 and 53 calls to us about the truth of our sin and how bad it is and people today don't want to hear that but that's the message of isaiah that we need and that's why it's poignant for today that we know the truth about why messiah had to come the way he came and do exactly what he did. The modern ear doesn't like that kind of violence. The modern ear isn't comfortable with the kind of sin that would require a Messiah to die like Isaiah predicts he would. The message of Isaiah is necessary today. It's the message of Christ, and Christ is the gospel. I'll close now with just one verse, another one of Isaiah's memorable and powerful statements, worthy of repeating every week. The grass withers, The flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Lord God, you declare through Isaiah, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Lord, we believe what you have said, and we are humbled by it. We know it is true. Lord, through the blood of Jesus, we ask for you to help us understand what you have said in your word and to obey. We ask for your Spirit's aid to bear the message of salvation that your word so clearly proclaims. We know that it is your zeal that will accomplish this. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.